refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. I'm Serge Antonin. Black and White and Thin Blue Lines is an original podcast co-created by Clark Ollers and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. My name is Clark Ollers. And I'm Serge Antonin. Today's topic is the diminishing trial, and particularly the diminishing jury trial in criminal cases. As we all know, in popular courtroom movies, there's a trial in the movies such as The Chicago 7, Marshall, The Lincoln Lawyer, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Verdict with Paul Newman, all highlighted trials. But trials, and particularly jury trials, are becoming a thing of the past. Serge? Yes, and according to the Pew Research Center, in 2018, approximately 80,000 people were defendants in U.S. federal criminal cases, which I find mind-blowing. But what's more mind-blowing is 90% pled guilty or pleaded guilty, 8% had their cases dismissed, while only 2% went to trial. And of that 2%, 90% of those who went to trial were convicted. Put it, to put it another way, in 2018, approximately 79,704 total federal defendants and 320 went to trial and won their cases, which is kind of crazy. It's frightening. Uh, Absolutely. Let me put this in context, in a great, in a bigger context. The United States is considered by many to have a mass incarceration problem. There are approximately 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. We're 5% of the world's population, but the United States incarcerates 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Now, from 1996 uh, to the pandemic, there was a declining crime rate overall, but incarceration rates remained the same. What that means is we're locking up a higher percentage of accused and convicted persons, and we're locking them up for longer periods of time. Serge, any racial component? Come on, Clark Ollis. There's always a racial component. Uh, 40% of the 2 million who are incarcerated are black males between 18 and 34. Another 20% of that gross number are young Hispanic males. And in 1960, about 300,000 people were in prison. And during the late, from the late 60s into the 90s, crime rates increased here in America. And I think that's probably the, the increasing crime rates is likely the reason that we ended up with more incarceration, which is now called mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. First, we had, culturally, we had the introduction of drugs into our culture in a popular, I, I know there were drugs in the 30s and 40s, but they either weren't readily available or weren't readily abused. And obviously the abuse of drugs and the importation, sale and abuse of drugs from the 60s on has become a cultural problem in the United States. 
Nixon declared the war on drugs. I still think the nomenclature was a mistake. I believed it as a young police officer. I look back and think, what a terrible mistake. Yeah, how's that working out? <laughs> right. Uh, but I also think that the uh, political reaction to the increased crime rate was to simply pass laws with more penalties, including mandatory minimums. And mandatory minimums are one of the things which has led to fewer jury trials. Because if a person is facing a number of charges and any one charge carries with it a mandatory minimum penalty, a penalty that the judge is not empowered to sentence less than, uh, the person may be inclined or leveraged to take a plea. In the plea bargaining in the federal system is really charge bargaining or became charge bargaining during the sentencing guidelines. Let me take a moment here and explain. The federal sentencing guidelines were designed to be more, I guess, more fair, equitable in sentences across the board from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and from person to person. And they basically had a matrix, which was two things. One was the level of the crime and the other was the criminal history of the offender. Mm -hmm. And you would basically dial in what the uh, sentence was. But in the federal system, it became almost, it became mathematics. In other words, literally the federal sentencing guidelines were volumes thick and you negotiated every point. But once you arrived at a guideline, the judge was required to sentence within that guideline. So what that did was lead people to try to negotiate a charge or a guideline range, which was lower, and in many ways led to the end of jury trials federally. Serge, any more statistics on the end of jury trials? Yes, but before I get into that, a lawyer I know kind of put that analogize that perfectly, what you just described. He said, imagine if you were being sued for a million dollars and you were given the offer of paying a thousand dollars outside the courtroom and the case would go away. Anybody would be reaching for their wallet to pay that thousand dollars rather than go to trial and risk being on the hook for one million. It's really just that simple in my opinion. Well, um, I agree. It becomes a little more complicated when the difference, to use your analogy, if the difference was five, 500,000 or a million. Mm -hmm. And what happens to poor people is they have nothing but time. Yes. And so they are faced with the probability. In fact, I'm going to talk in a few minutes about a case where a person was offered five years in prison and turned it down and ultimately was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Ooh. So, And you hear that and you're like, give me the five. <laughs> Especially if you, like you said, you got nothing but time and very little money. Well, um, how's that impacted jury trials? Well, the end of jury trials, uh, I think we all saw that coming. In 1980... 20%, roughly 20% of federal cases went before juries, and roughly 25% of state cases did. 
So we're talking, bring this up to now, where we're looking at 2% of federal cases and 2% of state cases actually go before juries, which is uh, amazing. But in light of the the what you just laid out for us, it's perfectly understandable. Well, it, it may be understandable, but I think it has enormous consequences culturally. Oh, I believe so too. First, Hence the, the racial component. But anyway, go ahead. Well, absolutely. But first, if you think about what trials are, trials are public scrutiny of the government's case. Mm-hmm. In other words, witnesses take the stand. They're subject to cross-examination. Evidence. The evidence is introduced. The cases are public, meaning the public doors are open. Typically, there's re- reporting on the case and so forth. So trials carry with it a lot of public scrutiny. Plea bargains are the opposite. They take place in the, first of all, they take place over the phone, (laughs) in the hallway of the courthouse, or or in the office of the prosecutor. In 36 years as an attorney, I have, I have had on a single occasion, a prosecutor come to my office to discuss a criminal case in 36 years, one time. And I, I really believe it was a Baltimore City case. It was a very serious case. But I honestly believe that they did so because the two attorneys wanted a field trip. <laughs> they wanted to see your digs? Well, <laughs> I don't even think it was that. I just think they wanted a day off from the circuit court of Baltimore City. Yeah. So Because they offered – they were kind of insistent that it be at my office, which mm. was fine by me. It was easier. But, I'll, but one time in 36 years, every other – time, and I've done about 5,000 criminal cases, every other time, every single meeting was either over the phone or with me going to the prosecutors. So it's all done privately in the back rooms of a government office without public scrutiny. And I think that's a a problem. And Serge, you've got some more statistics that bear out the nature of that problem. I certainly do. Uh, We'll go back to to evidence, like we were discussing. According to the Innocence Project, DNA exonerations of 370 people, 10% of that 370 actually pled guilty to rapes and murders, to crimes that they absolutely did not commit. And according to the National Registry of Exonerations, every court-ordered exoneration, 2,400 roughly, 15 to 20% pled guilty to crimes that they never committed, which is just outrageous, Clark Ollers, when you think about it. And we'll put the link um, for the National Registry of Exonerations on the website. That's a really interesting website, and I would encourage our listeners to just spend some time there looking around and learning about it. Uh, There's a federal judge named Jed Rakoff who wrote a book, which is on my reading list, which is also going to be put up on the website in the next uh, couple of days. And it's the book is called Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free. Now, let me deal with the guilty go free. In a nutshell, mm-hmm. the guilty going free, according to Judge Rakoff, and he had a real interesting, he has a real interesting federal background. Uh, the guilty going free are primarily white collar. And there was a case where the government negotiated against a corporation that had committed a, a bunch of crimes, defrauded people, mm-hmm. and they negotiated a, a 
big payment of millions of dollars. And Rakoff set it aside saying he wouldn't accept it to resolve the case because the corporation wasn't paying enough. They weren't uh, fixing the people that they had harmed enough. They weren't admitting enough guilt. And that's an example of Judge Rakoff believing the believing that the guilty go free. But why the innocent plead guilty is really more the topic of, of today's podcast in terms of the the diminishing trials. If you think about 2 million people incarcerated, and if only 5% of the people uh, are in jail for crimes they never actually committed. Now, that's less than both the Innocent Project statistic and the National Red Registry of Exoneration Statistic. But if it's only 5%, that means 100,000 people are in jail for crimes they didn't commit. <laughs> it's, it's, um, to me, it's shocking. Absolutely. Serge, do you think, or do, in your research, did you find any of the factors that are the biggest factors that innocent people are convicted? Yes. And Number one would be improper forensic evidence, which I'm sure will amaze most people, especially those who listen to uh, those podcasts that are ID type podcasts where they swear by this uh, forensic evidence and inaccurate eyewitness testimony. Now, let's get into uh, improper forensic evidence. It's amazing to me that according to the FBI, in studying their own experts, they admitted that hair testing, 95% of the cases that were, uh, that used hair testing, like hair follicle testing, 95% of them, it was like flatly overstated or wrong how important or how real the evidence was in the case. And um, also another thing is comparative bullet lead analysis. Apparently that's just quackery in a sense. It's not even Outside of DNA, most of this other science stuff is just kind of made up in a sense or whatever expert you believe at the time. And it's it's amazing. It's it's very subjective. The uh, comparative bullet lead analysis, I want to tell our listeners about a, a case I had. Okay. It started with the – in 2009, the National Academy of Science did a report on forensic evidence. And comparative bullet lead analysis did the following. It basically said – we can take a bullet from a body and we can compare it to bullets that the suspect has in their home or in their gun or in their safe. Mm -hmm. And we can look at the lead analysis from the bullet in the body and compare it to the lead analysis of the, <laughs> of the bullet, you know, recovered from the garage of the suspect or whatever. And we can say with certainty that the two are connected, that the two came from the same batch <laughs> and so if I was sitting on a jury in the old days, prior to 2009, I, my eyes would have gotten real wide. My God, you know. Well, I defended a man who, a really sad case, the man died in prison. Wow. And he had been convicted largely on the basis of comparative bullet lead analysis. Mm. And this man was convicted in Baltimore City Circuit Court. Now, when the FBI did their big study of comparative bullet lead analysis following the National Academy of Science, they sent a letter to everybody in the country where the FBI had testified about comparative bullet lead analysis, and they believed that, the, that their own experts from the FBI had overstated the evidence. 
And so this guy should have gotten a, a letter. But the letter was sent to the Baltimore County Circuit Court, not the Baltimore <laughs> City Circuit Court. And so it got apparently thrown in a trash can. It never went from Baltimore County to Baltimore City. How convenient. This man's sitting in prison in Western Maryland, and he's reading the Washington Post, and he reads about comparative bullet lead analysis, and he contacts a friend of his, and that friend had been represented by me. The friend's on the outside, and he's talking to his friend, and his friend says, well, I have a lawyer. So I went up to Western Maryland, met the guy. The guy had some money, family money, and so we were able to hire the, the best experts. In fact, we hired the author of the comparative bullet lead analysis uh, part of the National Academy of Science 2009 report. Mm. And ultimately, the judge ruled against us in the circuit court for Baltimore City. That's, that, to me, is just par for the course. Bias. I mean, I don't know any other way of putting it. In other words, no, we we got it right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is a bad guy, so we're we're going to rule against you, Mister Ollers, and you can take an appeal. I actually believe the judge believed we'd win on appeal. We would have won on appeal, no doubt in my mind. Unfortunately, the man passed away from natural causes while he was in prison mm -hmm. uh, during the pendency of the appeal. So that case went nowhere. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind. In fact, the expert I talked to who wrote the report summarized it so perfectly. He said, if any member of the jury had ammunition at their house, there was as high a probability that that ammunition would match the ammunition in the dead guy. Really? Yes. In other words, that's what it... In other words, this it's was absurd. so farcical <laughs> that, absurd. you know, if the, a member of the jury who had nothing to do with the crime, who was picked from the voter motor rolls of Baltimore City and happened to be sitting on the jury, if they'd have gone to their house, there was the same likelihood that their ammunition would have found to match the guy, the bullet and the dead guy. And they put this man in prison for that. So outrageous. And if you've got any ammunition at home, get rid of it. Yeah, well, it's uh, well. Comparative bullet lead analysis is basically not used anymore. That's but um, the other thing you say about inaccurate eyewitness testimony—yes, that was my second point or se second uh, reason or contributing factor to these um, these f falsely convicted or these innocent people who were convicted for crimes they didn't commit was uh, inaccurate eyewitness testimony and the frailties in the human memory and perception when it comes to being able to witness a person's face under stress. Usually it's just, it, it creates a lot of uh, problems along with r the racial aspect, like cross racial identification is one of the big issues because we all know that we usually grow up in homes that are is homogenous the word, would you say? Sure. That Yeah, where usually it's white people that you're around. Your family's white. Your family's friends are white. You're, if you're black, your mother's white. I mean, <laughs> your mother's black. Your father's black. Your relatives are black. So you tend to be able to identify your own more easily or with more accuracy versus cross-race. You tend to think, you know, you've heard that whole term, oh, they all look alike. Well... White and black people say that, believe it or not. You see white people, and unless there's some kind of distinguishing characteristic, you might be like, hey, 
They all look alike to me, man. I don't. <laughs> so I think that there is. It's it's very clear. The social sciences have studied cross racial identification as well as just identification in general. Yes. And you know, one of the things that, and I've been in many of these courtrooms where eyewitnesses testify either in favor of or against my client. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed about eyewitness testimony is this. Typically, the prosecutor or the proponent of the evidence will ask, how certain are you? And the eyewitness will most frequently say, I'd bet my life on it or something to this nature. And so what we end up doing is saying, well, I don't believe that, you know, Father Murphy would lie or Sister Mary would lie, and so I'm going to believe them and credit them. That's how certain they are. And you know that term, uh, everybody's got a twin? I believe that. I mean, and I think we've got triplets and quadruplets out there, people who favor you enough that you know what I always say. I don't know if any of you have ever looked at the pictures on the website, and if you're familiar with uh, the actor James Caan, but I thought Clark was James Caan the first time I met him. So, <laughs> yeah, well. You know what I mean? I mean, he didn't have James Conn's money, but <laughs> I thought it was James Conn the first time I met him. Well, you know, that's not so bad. I, not I don't at all. I'm being combined, uh, compared rather <laughs> to uh, James Conn. I've yeah. heard I look like some other people that aren't quite as, uh, you know. <laughs> attractive. Uh, yeah, attractive. <laughs> right. Or or, uh, or manly. <laughs> well, what are your thoughts, um, Serge, overall about some of these ideas and and about the diminishing? First of all, do you believe there are... Obviously, the statistics, I guess you have lies, damn lies, and statistics. I guess statistics can lie, but it certainly appears there are far fewer trials than there used to be and far fewer jury trials than generally trials. Well, I'm going to tell you what, from personal experience, I believe that this is true. I believe that people will take plea deals to crimes that they truly believe they didn't commit and that they don't even believe could be proven in court simply because the uh, worst outcome is just too bad. And it's a shame because in this country, home of the brave land of the free, we're all supposed to get a fair shot. And one of the things that, that bothers me so much about the racial component is that we see oftentimes in cities like Baltimore, Chicago, where, the crime rates go hand in hand with poor education. So you have this poor education and these people who are more times than not poor. So they may not even understand fully what they're pleading, pleading to in court or what their public defenders telling them in court. And like you like to say, they've got more time than money. So if they're facing 20 years for a crime they didn't commit, why not plea to something that'll give them five years for a crime they didn't commit? And it's just, it's just terrible. There's a, another former federal judge named Nancy Gertner, who was, uh, she was on a, I guess a, one of these New York Review of Books uh, podcasts, and she was talking about why the innocent plead guilty. Mm -hmm. And this is what she said. I'm going to quote her. Okay. Inquiring of a defendant as to the voluntariness of his guilty plea, 
felt like a kabuki ritual. <laughs> quote, has anyone coerced you to plead guilty? End quote, I would ask. And I felt like adding, quote, like thumbscrews or waterboarding. Because anything less than that, including a threatened tripling of your sentence, should you go to trial, for example, doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And the remarks were not hyperbole by Judge Gertner. A survey of the United States Sentencing Commission's data for 2015 revealed that, quote, in most primary offense categories, the average post-trial sentence was more than triple the average post-plea sentence. And to put this in another, another way, circuit courts around the United States, I'll talk about the Supreme Court in a moment, but mm -hmm. circuit courts, meaning uh, federal courts that are appellate courts for multiple states, federal circuit courts have sanctioned plea deals premised on threats to indict or promises not to indict a defendant's family members. Mm. In other words, as you sit and listen to this podcast, you may say to yourself, I, you know, I'm, I have more intestinal fortitude than the average person. And that sounds good until you're that person. Correct. I would, <laughs> I would not plead guilty to a crime I, Absolutely. Didn't, I didn't commit until a federal prosecutor tells you and your lawyer, no problem, we'll indict your child your autistic child, or we'll indict your spouse. Or your 73-year-old mother. How do you like that? By the way, I, I've, I've had that exact case. We will indict your father and mother if you don't plead guilty. And most people, myself included, were raised in such a way that a, a healthy male child is expected to take on a physical burden for his elderly mother. Absolutely. So the idea that you would indict my mother uh, in order to convict her and send her to prison instead of me agreeing to go to prison for a period of time, yeah, that's that's a prosecutorial leverage that I would pay a lot of attention to. And I could see myself being uh, convinced that it's in my interest, when I say my interest, my moral interest, mm -hmm. you know, my interest in preventing harm to my family, it might be in my interest to plead guilty to a crime I didn't commit. Serge, I say to clients all the time, if I was arrested for two crimes, murder and trespassing, murder carried life without parole, Trespassing carried 90 days. Even if you didn't do either one, right? I That's have done not, right. I haven't okay. done either one. All right. But I'm arrested for those two crimes or indicted for those two crimes. Mm -hmm. My lawyer comes to me and says, if you plead guilty to trespassing and accept a 90-day jail sentence, the state will null-pross the murder case. I would stand up in court and swear if the judge said, are you pleading guilty because you, in fact, did trespass? I would say yes. Because to me, it would be common sense to admit the trespassing and take the 90 days incarceration to prevent even the possibility of life without parole. And, and I'm going to analogize, you analogized it to something a few minutes ago, the million dollars versus the thousand. Mm -hmm. I want to analogize it to something else. 
Now, some of it we do because we're required to do, but some of it we don't. I have automobile insurance, as you do, Serge. Yes. Because we both have Maryland driver's licenses and Maryland automobiles registered to us, and we are required by Maryland law to have an auto insurance policy. But I'm not required by Maryland law to have a policy for the contents of my office, but I do. Why? Because I'm willing to pay a premium every year against the risk of losing everything. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the same as pleading guilty to trespassing to avoid life without parole for the murder. Absolutely. And to me, so I, I think, and Serge, I feel so strongly about this. There are, in fact, by the way, I really, I know I'm talking too much. No, you're not. I, I mean, I think the people I, need to hear this. Well, I've encouraged our listeners to really spend some time on the National Registry of Exoneration website. But they did a, there's a study that's published on that website called Government Misconduct and Convicting the Innocent. And I think when you read about the cases where the government has, by the way, I had such a case. I had a case in Carroll County where I represented a young man who had an IQ calculated to be between 65 and 69. And I ultimately proved that the, now this was pre-trial, so he was never convicted and he never pled guilty. Now, where is that on the scale? I'm, I'm not familiar. What, what do you mean on the you scale? You said between, what is, uh, uh, what is average intelligence? Um, he would be called intellectually challenged. Okay, so what are like the average numbers for uh, someone well, of average? Well, average the average IQ in America is a 100. Oh, okay, so that gives, okay, now, ooh, and so, now I understand. And so, you know, bright people might have an IQ of 140, Okay, and this guy had an IQ of 65. Meaning wow. He was, he was, if you go on average up to very, very smart, mm -hmm. now go down, yeah. you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. To, to not so smart. <laughs> That was this. I don't mean to laugh, but I no, get it. No, that I was this it. child. And he, yes. by the way, he was fetal alcoholism syndrome. Wow. And so forth. Now, what he did, he confessed to the murder. Now, he confessed after a six and a half hour interrogation where he had no lawyer mm. and was tricked into it, in my opinion, by a very experienced police officers who, who, again, this is my value system, should have been ashamed of themselves. But pre trial, I was his lawyer, was appointed to represent this young man. Pre-trial, I proved that exculpatory evidence, meaning evidence that somebody else committed this crime, had not been disclosed to me by the prosecutor. <laughs> now, the prosecutor said, well, it wasn't disclosed to me by the police. And I get it, but I'm indifferent. In yes, other words, yes. shame on both of you. You know, I, I don't know what it's going to take, but uh, I think that prosecutorial misconduct is a huge, huge problem in these cases because I think that law enforcement is often a competitive enterprise engaged in by people who, unfortunately, uh, have egos like the rest of us. And uh, if they if they say Mr. Miller committed the crime, they have very little interest in proving no no actually there's a equal or more evidence that mr smith commit committed the crime particularly if mr miller has confessed yes so more thoughts from you serge on this well when you when you talk about this it's it just flies in the face of any integrity 
like the the oath that police take, the oath that lawyers take, and I'm talking defense attorneys and uh, prosecutors, for them to be cogs and knowingly, because you can't, these prosecutors know exactly what they're doing, and it's kind of like a game. You remember in the movie um, A Few Good Men, when he was kind of proud, when I say he, Daniel Caffey played by... um, Tom Cruise was proud of not really having to ever go to court because he was able to get pleas all the time. Right. And he turned it turned out that um he decided to try the case because he believed in it. And you just wonder if these people truly understand the damage that they're doing. And they're doing so much damage on so many different levels because it's like you're working for the devil in a sense. And you can't respect a system that continuously and statistically, it's not like we're making this up, prove that, for one, there are racial disparities. And two, that you would do this to anyone, regardless of their race, allow a a not guilty man or a man who you know didn't commit the crime to sit a day in jail when you know he didn't commit the crime is just, it's just unreal, man. And one of my uh, suggestions for something like this is that lawyers be held more accountable. And I know that's, especially lately when it comes to police and all and criminal justice system, the word accountability gets thrown around a lot. But I just think that on the police level, as long as it's not a deadly mistake, you kind of expect mistakes to be made and they should be, they should be held accountable, but you kind of expect them to be made. But once they get past the police to the prosecutorial level, you just have very little latitude, you know, for mistakes. And it, it can just, I mean, it can just, it's destroying a nation when you think about it. Serge, I, I did not know that you were going to suggest accountability for lawyers, but I completely agree with you. One thing that frustrates me to no end is that the way that guilty pleas are done in state court, it's done often in writing where you just have your client sign something or mm-hmm. when judges run through the the rights, I know to a moral certainty, half of the people in that courtroom have no idea what they're talking about or giving up. And I suggested, it got absolutely nowhere with the Maryland State Bar Association, but I suggested that the Maryland rules of court be changed requiring criminal defense attorneys to file an affidavit in each case where there was a guilty plea explaining under oath that they had gone over the elements of the offense with their client (laughs) satisfied themselves that their client understood the elements of the offense. Absolutely. Satisfied themselves they understood the potential, what they were giving up by not going to trial, and satisfied themselves that the client was making an intelligent decision. And I think uh, lawyers ought to have to sign an affidavit that they've done that. Now, let me tell you the affidavit I think prosecutors ought to have to sign, Serge. In every guilty plea case, I think the prosecutor should have to sign an affidavit that they've looked for exculpatory evidence and haven't found any exculpatory Mm -hmm. evidence. 
or they've disclosed all the exculpatory evidence known to them and detail what their policy is to to find and 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 get exculpatory evidence. In other words, and you know what, Carl Gallows, I don't mean to cut you off, but I love the idea. And you know what, I'm going to go a step further and say there should have to be a co-affiant as kind of like a safeguard. What do you think? I love the like idea. Like another lawyer who who has yeah, no somebody, real, just like the sergeant checks the corporal's work. Absolutely, but yeah. in this case, not someone who works. No, directly with the, you know, in other what I mean? words, the court could appoint yes, lawyer A, absolutely, who they, who they trust, yes. to review five pleas from lawyer B, C, D, and absolutely, e, and F. absolutely. Well, let me tell our listeners about a case because this is kind of sh- this is kind of shocking <laughs> thing which is happening in America. I thought you were going to say something else. Well, <laughs> in the case is uh, Borden Kersher v. Hayes, B O R D E N K I R C H E R v. Hayes, nineteen seventy eight Supreme Court case. Found at 434 United States 357. In that case, a defendant was charged with uttering a forged instrument, Mm -hmm. which basically means writing a bad check. Fancy words for writing a bad check. Mm -hmm. The amount of the bad check surge, $88.30. The prosecutor wanted a guilty plea in exchange for recommending a five-year sentence. (laughs) The prosecutor threatened that if the defendant did not plead guilty, he would seek a new indictment under the Kentucky Habitual Criminal Act, which carried a mandatory life sentence. Now, poor Mr. Hayes, who presumably wrote the $88.30 check, Mm -hmm. Hayes refused the deal, I guess feeling that five years in prison for an $88 bad check was too much, which, by the way, I completely agree. Unreasonable. Right. In any event, Hayes refused the deal. The prosecutor, true to his word, carried out the threat. Mm. Hayes was convicted at trial and given a life sentence. And our Supreme Court upheld the conviction. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It shocks the conscience. But what this means is that prosecutors have free reign to use the threat of extraordinary penalty to secure guilty pleas, no matter the disparity between the sentence offered in a plea and the sentence threatened at trial, which is what caused former federal judge Nancy Gertner to say, other than thumbscrews or waterboarding, did anybody threaten you? Because to me, Serge, and I mean this very candidly, if somebody waterboarded me and I pled guilty to a crime I didn't commit, that pales in the face of threatening me with life imprisonment. Yeah. In other words, obviously I'd rather be waterboarded than be sentenced to prison for the rest of my life. How do you yet, sleep at night? And yet one is completely okay. You can threaten. And, and you know what kills me? We all we often talk about, especially nowadays, um, police brutality and excessive force when it comes to deadly force right. here in America. I think that's wrong. Obviously, most of us do when it's when it's not justifiable and clearly justifiable. But this kind of stuff to me, threatening to imprison a man for life over a crime that shouldn't even get him a day probation for 18 months. Who knows? Pay it back. Restitution. But to take someone's freedom away for life, I mean, that just shocks the conscience. Well, I, I think this 
I think what's happening in our criminal justice system frequently should shock the conscience. Both of us have some ideas now or proposals for correcting some of these problems. Uh, who do you want to go first, Serge? I don't, I don't care. You can go first because I'm sure you have more ideas than I do. Well, I do have some strong ideas. Okay. First, I think we should eliminate mandatory minimums. I think that they... I understand why people wanted mandatory minimums. They wanted to take uh, away the power of judges to give sentences that were too low for certain crimes. The problem is that the mandatory minimums create enormous incentive for innocent people to plead guilty. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one that I think may happen – in the next year in Howard County, I'm intimately familiar with the facts of the case. And it's it's shocking, but the, the threat of a minimum mandatory is often just too much for people. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think we need to re- restore power to juries. And by restoring power to the juries, I first mean we should normalize jury nullification. Now, that's going to sound radical to a lot of people until you remember that the Sixth Amendment our guarantee to a right to trial by jury was enacted at a time when the common law of England, which we were adopting in the United States in large part, the common law of England carried with it 220 crimes, which had the death penalty associated with them, 220 crimes, so that the way people avoided the death penalty was the jury would nullify, would find the person not guilty of those crimes, which carried the death penalty. I'm a believer in jury nullification for another reason. It's, it is a check. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to Thomas Paine about the jury being the only check on the power of government or the, one of the big checks on the – I shouldn't say the only, but one of the big checks on the power of government. I think that's what a jury was, in, was expected to do when the jury system was enacted in the United States. And I know that you, Serge, have some ideas on uh, pay – for yes. certain people in the in the would you like me to go system? into that? Sure, go right ahead. Uh but the juror thing, I think it's important for people who sit on juries to understand how important their civic duty is because most people dread getting called for jury duty simply because they don't understand in my opinion that that could be them at some point who needs a jury to be awake, needs a jury to be attentive and fair. So I think we need to go about picking jurors better and people who volunteer because to force someone to do anything, you're not getting the best person to do that thing. You know what I mean? Um, But also as far as paying people better, I think that public defenders should get paid better simply because if you have people who are just going through the motions so they can get experience, I don't think that people who have to depend upon the public defender system are getting the best lawyer or bang for their, or our tax buck, whatever you want to call it. Um, I even think prosecutors should get paid better because I think they take their jobs more seriously And there should definitely be a separation between the public defender's office and the state because they're both getting paid by the same entity in a sense. And that's kind of ludicrous at the end of the day. 
because um I would think that would breed impropriety. But uh, uh I I think that the public defenders are less likely to be too assertive against the hand that feeds them. Absolutely. Is, is the basic problem. Yes. Uh I I don't have any problem with paying public defenders more money. I actually think that George Soros and some of these billionaires who want to affect public policy would do far more good by sending that money to public defenders' offices so that you could have independent public defenders well-financed to challenge the abuses in the system. That's a great idea. Uh, well, thank you. It <laughs> is. The, the other thing and I, I would support it. The other thing I would I'm a believer in is I think public defenders' salaries ought to be tied to states' attorney salaries and vice versa. Meaning, I don't think one side there should be parity. Yes, there yeah. should be parity because we are interested in a balance. If we if we believe in the process, I don't believe that most politicians do believe in the process, which leads most to most citizens not believing in the process. Right, I I agree. Uh, or I don't know which comes first, the, the you know, the, the chicken or the chicken egg. or the egg. <laughs> but I do, but I do think that there is a general disdain for our criminal justice process. Absolutely, that is problematic because what it leads to is uh, an abuse of power, uh, and it's particularly used against poor and poorly educated and poorly connected people. And I see it every day of my life in the criminal justice system. It's and it's abhorrent, Absolutely. and it ought to it ought to keep more people awake at night. Well, that wraps up. Look, this is a complex problem that we only touched upon in forty five minutes of dialogue. We really do it, do hope that we've communicated the importance of trials and of jury trials to the overall process of convicting the guilty, but exonerating the innocent. Absolutely. And I think we did, Clark Ollers, because I don't think many people even consider this on their day-to-day basis because it's not them. It's, you know, we're, you know, like I like to say, we're all governed by apathy until it's us. Well, it, it's, uh, un- I'm not an apathetic person and neither are you. And we certainly urge our listeners just by listening. You're, I'm not anymore. You're showing, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're just by listening. Our <laughs> listeners are showing some interest in yes. making this world a better place. And we thank our listeners very much. And that will end our episode today. And I look forward to communicating with our listeners again in two weeks. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. But life is never easy. There's work to be done and obligations to be met, obligations to truth, to justice, and to liberty. This podcast is the copyrighted property of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines Incorporated, a Maryland corporation. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the written permission of the owner is prohibited. For more information, we invite you to visit the website, blackandwhiteandthinbluelines.com. All of the words in the URL address use common spelling and are typed together with no spaces. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we welcome your remarks through email. The email addresses of the co-creators, Serge Antonin and Clark Ollers, may be found on the website.